Hi everyone, my name is Christopher Bonheim and you're listening to the BIN podcast. Simply the podcast for those who want to learn from the very best in business, tech and entrepreneurship. Let's start the show. Eustan Hem is the CFO and interim CEO of the technology and video conferencing platform Pexit. Eustan started his career in McKinsey before joining Telenor and after some years decided to join the exciting journey of Pexit. In this episode, we discuss how Einstein is trying to grow Pexip to become the best video tool in the world, his best advice for people wanting to scale software internationally, how he sees the strategy of Pexip evolving, and we also do a bunch of good Twitter questions. Let's start the episode. Quarter is the new way of doing company research. With Quarter, you get frictionless access to conference calls, investor presentations, transcripts, and earnings reports from markets all around the world straight to your pocket. Quarter's mission is to change the way people look at investor relations and create a completely new bridge between companies and stakeholders. Quarter is 100% free. They include companies from 15 markets today and plan to add more over time. They always prioritize requested companies, which users can easily do in the app. Users can also leave reactions while listening to the conference calls to make their voice heard. So check out Quarter. Q-U-A-R-T-R. All opinions expressed by Christopher Wonheim or his guests on this podcast are only their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of BIN. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Christopher Wonheim as a specific reason to invest or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Okay, first of all, Esten, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you, Christopher. Happy to be here. We're going to dive into Pexip, of course, but if you go back, so can you tell us about the days where you, when you were studying at the university in Trondheim and why you decided to start at McKinsey? Yeah, happy to. So, uh, uh, as you mentioned, I studied in uh, the university uh, in, uh, in Trondheim, a combination of really technology and economics. So, a fairly broad exposure and gave me an okay understanding of both technology and, uh, and business and finance. And so... Then, uh, as I sort of were at the end and uh, had to decide what to do after university, I was still unsure about sort of which direction to take. And so McKinsey seemed like a great option because it gave me really the freedom to explore a lot of uh, different topics and a lot of different uh, functions. Um, I think at the end, it, uh, probably the, the most interesting part of, of that journey was all of the great people that I got to work with because uh, uh, it truly was, was a great environment with a lot of... Uh, a lot of talented colleagues. Working when you were working at McKinsey, did you have any any industry you worked very close to, or were you a generalist working abroad? So many different industries. I think I was a fairly fairly sort of generalist uh, in uh, that I worked across several industries. Uh, most of them had something to do with sales. So both in retail and uh, in telecoms. Uh, which were sort of the industries that I worked the most with. Uh, a lot of the projects were around sales, sales efficiency, uh, pricing, and those sort of topics. Was that also then the the bridge to join Telenor, or is there yeah, a specific, sure. specific story behind that, or was it just naturally a consultancy from McKinsey, and then like opportunity came and you decided to join Telenor? 
to be fair, I think it was more that the opportunity came. I think that's really the been the uh, uh, sort of common theme, at least in my career, that uh, when interesting opportunities have uh, have come up, uh, I, I try to take them. Uh, so, uh, Intel Nor specifically, it was a former colleague that uh, was the the head of strategy in. Uh, a large Telnor business unit, and uh, he needed to expand his team, and so he asked if I was interested in joining. Uh, and sorry, and I think at the time, for me, it was important to go from then really deep diving in a couple of months and uh, learning a lot of interesting things, but not really having any responsibility of actually implementing the stuff that you advise on. Uh, for me, it was uh, I was eager to also get my hands on on that part of the experience of actually trying to. Uh, to implement and to get the results uh, that you're looking for. Obviously, Telenord has this incredible story about how they got to be truly an international company. Um, did you work internationally at Telenord? Did you have any projects abroad? Uh, some, but uh, most of my uh, my focus was really in, in to Telenor Norway. Uh, but in that, I got to work with uh, also the other Scandinavian BUs, especially on the, the B2B side, uh, as well as some of the other European uh, business units. So uh, I got some experiences internationally, although I think my core focus has always been on the, uh, the Norwegian business. So, so tell us about uh, the first time you discover Pexip. Is it when you are interesting, interested in, in joining them or is it a previous experience? So I came across Pexip uh, as a technology uh, a bit before I, I joined. So I was aware of the company and sort of slightly aware of, of what they did. Uh, but in the end, the really sort of reason for me to join, uh, join Pexip was to, uh, one, after having worked in Telnor for uh, uh, for six years or so, I wanted to have the experience of working in a smaller company. Uh, and after having worked mainly with Norway as, as my focus, also wanted to have that exposure to, to international business. So I think those were the two main uh, drivers for me, uh, wanting to move from Telnor to Pexip. Uh, even though sort of at the time uh, left a substantial team with a huge business area and, and 50 plus uh, d direct uh, uh, employees to then joining a company which was 90 people overall and really a, uh, a, a bit un undefined role as the VP of strategy. Super interesting. If we if we look at Pexip, can you tell us sort of the the founding story? And of course, there now there has been two companies that has merged into Pexip. But can you tell us sort of the original story dating back? Hmm. Yeah, I think Pexip started uh, back in 2012. Uh, so at the time, uh, Cisco had acquired Tamberg, uh, which was really a international powerhouse within uh, video conferencing. And out of that acquisition uh, came both Cisco sort of stepping up on their video conferencing side, but also quite a lot of people that uh, over the years have left Cisco uh, to found uh, other companies. Uh, Pexip was one of those companies. Uh, and the idea uh, that the, the founders had was that at the time, video conferencing was really hardware-based. So to have a video conference, you needed to, uh, in addition to having the cameras and soundbars in the meeting rooms, you also need these big specialized servers in your data center. Uh, they took in all of the various video streams from the different cameras uh, and compiled them into one uh, picture that they then sent back. Uh, so that you have more than one, one person on the screen at the, at the same time. And, yeah. uh, and, and I think what Paxi saw is that uh, video needs to scale beyond what can be done in these specialized servers because hardware-based solutions rarely scale really well. 
so they set out that this has to be a software solution and it has to be a software solution that can be run in the cloud uh, so that it can use standard based uh, or standard processors uh, to do all of these um, uh, computations that is needed to provide a great video conference. Uh, which, uh, if it was anything but video, would be fairly straightforward. But when you add the requirements in terms of having uh, close to zero latency, because if it takes you half a second from uh, when I say something to you uh, hearing it, it's not a fantastic experience, right? Um, so that was really the sort of core engineering uh, challenge that the Paxit team set out to solve and, uh, and did so very successfully. And then you, you had the merger a couple of years ago. What was the story behind that one? So the merger, uh, so back then you had uh, Paxip, uh, who then provided a software-based solution for video conferencing. And you had Videxio, which had, uh, based on that software, built a, a video conferencing service. So I think uh, Videxio really came out of the same type of need uh, that video conferencing can't be hardware-based. It needs to be then a software as a service. So they set out to build a, uh, a as-a-service offering uh, for video conferencing. Uh, over the time, uh, they became a large customer of Paxip. Uh, so the underlying technology and the sort of user experience that you had was similar both for Paxip and for, for Videxio, but how you consumed it was very different. So when the two companies merged back in 2018, uh, you had really this, uh, this amazing uh, value proposition that you can get the same great user experience and if you want to consume it as a software or if you want to consume it as a cloud service, it's really up to you. Uh, so I think that uh, really sort of expanded the reach of both companies uh, because at the end, it's the same type of customer. It's you, very often the same type of bid, uh, but then you can serve both uh, both alternatives and not have to sort of be hit and miss on, on half of them because the customer wants a different deployment option. Totally makes sense. Let's uh, go back to you a bit. Uh, I mean, obviously you joined Paxip to, so, to sort of join a smaller company, more dynamic, more fast paced, I guess. And now you're sitting there as the interim CEO after being the CFO. How's that journey been for you personally? And how does it feel to have the CEO role right now? So I think it's been a, uh, I think it uh, proves the fact that uh, you can't always plan your, your career. So being sort of able to take risk and to go for the experiences that you, you want to have, uh, at least for me, has has paid off. I think that's been true both when I joined Paxip, but also in, in taking on other roles uh, previously in, in my career. Um, and then it's really been about uh, having joined Paxip, uh, trying to provide uh, more value, uh, finding ways to, to be useful and helpful to my team, uh, which has helped me then first take on the CFO role uh, back in 2019. And then uh, now that uh, with OS's departure, our former CEO, uh, also then put me in the position to, to have the interim CEO role. Uh, I read an article uh, where you said that you have sort of, you think your strengths are that you're quite curious and you like to understand things. And also that you like to have your team to make quick decisions and let them experiment. Can you, can you talk a bit about that philosophy you have and how you try to implement that in Pexip? Yeah, and I think part of the success was really that uh, that's a philosophy that was there in Pexip already. So I think uh, one of our core values has been freedom and responsibility, uh, so, which means really that uh, even though we have a clear company strategy uh, and a sort of common uh, mountaintop that we all want to climb, uh, the how to solve the concrete problems that people come across, uh, they have a lot of freedom to find the best solution. 
uh, that goes within engineering on uh, sort of how to solve particular problems that they face. And it's uh, also applicable to sales. So how they uh, uh, both structure an offering to the customer uh, and uh, how they can sort of take our fairly standardized product and fit it to uh, fit the unique needs of the customer. Uh, they have a lot of individual uh, freedom in doing so. And I think that's really important because if you if you want to scale, the world rarely sort of fits a one-size-all uh, methodology. And so you really need a culture where people feel that they have the freedom uh, and also are trained to find the good solutions uh, to, the, to the problems they face. If you look at that sort of the culture you're talking about now, how much do you feel it is about uh, the culture versus the structures and frameworks you have impl implemented in the company? I think without that sort of common culture and uh, a common way of doing things, and also a uh, to some extent a training in uh, how how to face different problems and, and how to solve them, you won't get anywhere. So you can uh, try to retrofit a structure of uh, agile way of working uh, as an example, but if the underlying culture isn't there, it will be very very difficult. Uh, then, of course, you need to have structures and frameworks that sort of reinforce that culture. So if you say uh, that you want one type of behavior, uh, but all of the formal decisions are taken in a very different way, uh, obviously, that will uh, th then you will not get the culture that, uh, that you're saying that you're having. So I think there's, uh, they really need to be mutually reinforcing. Uh, but I think it's much, much easier to start with a solid culture uh, and then sort of adapt structures and uh, frameworks on top of that than to uh, try and implement uh, a structure which isn't really aligned with the underlying culture. Uh, then I think you really need to address that piece first. Makes sense. So let's go back to Pexip a bit. Obviously, you get this question a lot, I guess, but just to to hear from you, the competitive landscape. I mean, they're so, so easy to compare uh, Pexip to Zoom and then Microsoft Teams and Google Hangouts, etc. How do you sort of paint the picture on the competitive landscape and also the specific niche that Pexip has targeted? Yeah, no, so I think uh, video conferencing has really exploded since uh, the start of, of 2020. Uh, it's uh, actually difficult to try and explain sort of the, uh, the massive shift that has, uh, has happened from a position where uh, video conferencing was, uh, for one, hardly used, uh, and also didn't have that many people believing in it uh, as as a concept. To then uh, fast forward eighteen months after the uh, the, the pandemic, where it's really become a, a mainstream tool and uh, become quite commoditized. Uh, so that's uh, definitely been a, a a a tremendous journey, both for Pexip and the and the industry. Um, and I think it created both opportunities and challenges for Pexip. So uh, back in 2020, the room for Pexip as a uh, sort of very specialized video tool that really provided this great video experience uh, was certainly there. And we had a lot of customers using Pexip for video and then in parallel using other tools for their uh, other collaboration needs. Now that video has become uh, so mainstream and also if sort of, I would argue that it's become fairly commoditized, then uh, we see that it's being more and more integrated into work streams like uh, Teams, like Google Meet, that sort of fits into the overall productivity bundle. Um, although you ha have some examples, as Zoom as an example, that are still uh, then surviving mainly as a video tool. Uh, so I think 
uh, that sort of overall use case of uh, enterprise collaboration uh, has been smaller for Pexip now than it was uh, prior to the pandemic, although the market as a whole has been uh, dramatically larger. Um, the positive for Pexip is that around that there are a lot of niches that we are really successful in. So, one providing sort of interoperability, so standard-based video conferencing units, uh, the stuff that you find in most boardrooms and uh, enterprise meeting rooms. We are really great at connecting those with the platforms of Microsoft and Google. So being that uh, intermediary that can uh, just ensure that everything keeps working together and that uh, there is no sort of user that is uh, stuck in this enormous and expensive boardroom and has to join on their laptop. Uh, is certainly one of the use cases that now is much more common than it was prior to 2020 uh, and where Paxip is uniquely sort of positioned to deliver on that. The other use case that uh, that we see that have really sort of uh, taken off as part of the pandemic uh, is the whole concept around video enablement or how you meet your doctor uh, using video uh, when you go to an online store that you can use uh, video to ask for help uh, from the the retail clerk uh, when you want to meet a bank advisor and you would earlier go to a uh, uh, a retail branch and now you see more and more of that is happening on video uh, that's also a segment that Paxip is finding a lot of success in because we have a platform which is really built to be tailored and built to fit the large enterprises. And there it's uh, much easier for us to use our strengths uh, and the sort of tie in into a sort of overall productivity suite where you have document sharing and other, uh, other workflows is far less in, in, that type of, uh, in that type of use case. Very interesting. I mean, doing the research on Pexip, it also stood out to me that so that flexibility is a big edge or a, a big strength. Uh, just uh, on another similar topic in terms of video conferencing, if you look at privacy, I know it's a big, big topic, but in your mind, how do you break that down, the privacy aspect of delivering a great product? Hmm. I think privacy has become... Uh more and more top of mind as uh, sort of, uh, there's a, a saying perhaps mainly in Norway that data is the new oil uh, and that it's really a lot, of, um, a lot of value in your data. And then as an individual or as a business, uh, who has access to that data and what they can use that data for, it becomes more and more important. And so you've seen, especially over the last decade, there are rules in Europe and in, uh, in the US and uh, in other locations in terms of GDPR and other sort of privacy regulation has really stepped up uh, over, the, over the past uh, decade. So I think privacy, just because it guards our data, is super important. Then you have different flavors of, of privacy. I think there's one that uh, I can trust a organization to... Uh, keep my data and to use it uh, in a respectful manner. Uh, that I think is the uh, baseline for most, uh, most services, uh, both digital and, and physical these days. Uh, and then you have a different sort of privacy need if you are into more specialized uh, uh, use cases, such as the government wanting to have a, uh, a top secret conference, the military that wants to have, uh, have a, a meeting platform with their uh, their soldiers out in the field. That's where sort of the needs around privacy and the needs around uh, having control and security uh, are much higher than in uh, in most uh, other use cases. 
be, being a tech company, do you have sort of like a, a North Star when it comes to privacy, like a goal you want to reach? Or is it sort of something that just always top of mind and you always have to adjust, think about it? I mean, there is a case where if you go too private, you lose all transparency. And of course, that isn't, or mm. you can argue it's it's balance regardless. No, no. I, and I think it is, especially when it comes to user experience, because there's a lot of things that are very simple uh, that uh, comes at the expense of privacy and, and security. So if you were to have uh, a secret unique password for every uh, sort of uh, video meeting that you were joining, uh, that would be super secure and also quite private. But of course, it would be a bit of a challenge uh, to juggle all of those unique passwords. So I think that that's truly a... Um, that is a trade-off that you have to make. And so the trade-off will be different for a uh, a, a meeting uh, sort of within a company uh, where they are most likely able to trust that uh, whoever is providing the service won't misuse that data. Uh, and then in situation where uh, privacy and security are sort of much more important, uh, and then you need a, a different type of trade-off between what you can accept and uh, in terms of user friendliness and uh, and security. Makes sense. Um, but I, the, you, yeah. sorry, uh, uh, you started the question sort of what is our North Star on that? And I think you really have to have privacy and security as part of your overall design. Uh, I think it's very, very difficult to try and retrofit uh, security and privacy into a solution uh, and into your overall philosophy. Uh, just as an example, sort of in terms of what data you collect. So uh, there's a lot of data that we could potentially collect from our users that would be useful to have uh, both ourselves for um, to then do good uh, targeting with ads, etc. And I mean, it could even potentially be a, a asset that could be interesting to to others in in the industry. Um, but for us, it's really been a, a sort of conscious decision to gather as little information as we need. Uh, to maintain our operations, but to really ensure the privacy and, and security of our users, uh, which is our top priority. Uh, and in that, uh, there are then some trade-offs that uh, if we need to, to err, we will err on the side of, uh, of privacy and security and really make sure that we deliver a great experience on that uh, and then risk uh, not having all the data that could potentially be useful to us uh, further down the road. Makes sense. Uh, what do you think is the biggest misunderstanding about Pexip? I mean, you meet a lot of clients, you meet a lot of, a lot of investors. Do you see any like big ones? I think the, the main one is uh, sort of how will Pexip compete with Microsoft Teams um, where, uh, or Zoom or, or WebEx for, for that matter, uh, where the case is really that uh, we don't really compete with them. So for Pexip, uh, we focus on our three niches within uh, video interoperability and infrastructure. So really connecting uh, other devices into Teams and, and other platforms uh, where we have a lot of synergy with it, with Microsoft. Uh, the second are on critical meetings, on uh, which is really about delivering sort of ultra secure platforms, which is a use case that the cloud providers don't really uh, don't really work in. And then thirdly, within the whole space of video enablement, uh, where sort of the ability to be tailored and to really sort of adjust the platform to fit each uh, customer's unique needs is much more important. Uh, and where we don't really, uh, where we to some extent meet Microsoft and, uh, and Zoom as competitors, but also a lot of other types of solutions uh, in that space. 
I mean, it's also maybe uh, in this space, it's more about growing the pie as well. So like you said, like this partnership is also about growing the pie. It's not like taking shares from others, always at least. Hmm. No, for sure. And I think for us, it's uh, um, really enabling new uh, opportunities for our customers, uh, which is the main driver. And then, of course, we can uh, also help them save a lot of costs on their existing infra- infrastructure. But, but there it's uh, uh, typically sort of the, the traditional vendors such as Cisco, Poly, and others that have that install base that we're going after. It's not really the, the uh, video meeting platforms uh, that uh, people connect into. So, so for, for the listeners that uh, maybe wants to, to know more about your clients, I mean, you have some very, very big ones. How would you like to, maybe in terms of explaining the clients, also explain the niche that you have targeted so they can sort of understand why you have those clients and why they have juice and Paxip as well. No, no, I think from the start, Paxip has really gone after the large organizations. So the large enterprises and also large public sector organizations. Uh, that's really been our target market. Uh, and uh, those are also the customers that have need for video infrastructure uh, and that have need for the security and privacy that Paxip can offer. Um, and so as an example, in the US, we have uh, both 15% of the Fortune 500 companies as, uh, as customers, uh, not exclusively. So most of them will also then have uh, Teams or Zoom or other uh, providers uh, in their sort of overall collaboration and, and video suite, but they will use Paxip in parallel with those uh, to solve uh, some of their use case that they can't really solve with the, with the Teams and the, and the others. Then it's really about then also in the public sector, uh, having uh, customers such as uh, NASA, the US space agency. Uh, we're a proud provider of the European Commission. So there's quite a lot of uh, um, uh, Twitter posts with uh, these uh, large uh, uh, EU meetings uh, where you where the layout makes it pretty apparent that it's Pexip that is being used. Uh, and also the US Army, which is a huge customer of ours. Can you say like what are what was the hardest client to land? I think uh, if you look uh, just now in, in Q3 of, of 2021, we uh, landed DISA, which is the US uh, sort of service provider for a lot of the armed forces, both I mean, the army, the Navy, uh, the Air Force, as well as the some of the other sort of uh, surrounding uh, agencies and, uh, um, and the White House and sort of that, that arm of, of government. Uh, that was a huge undertaking. So, I mean, from starting the discussion probably as uh, late as or as early as uh, 2016 uh, with really sort of getting our certification in order to be able to at, even begin the discussion uh, to when they first were a, a customer of ours back in uh, 2019 or 2020, which was about really a substantial customer for Paxip, but that was really a test rig. So they have run a uh, extended PLC with us for more than a year until they are now sort of launching Paxip as their uh, their main uh, main technology uh, now from September and, and onwards. Okay, given that that niche, is it also uh, right to say that to land clients takes a longer time because the clients are bigger and maybe have more needs? No, and I think just the... Uh, this example is definitely the extreme, uh, but it's also probably the uh, most valuable reference customer into that space as th- that we that anyone can can have. So it's uh, definitely an important win for us. Uh, I think all, everyone that is targeting large enterprises, um, 
both in video conferencing, but certainly in other uh, spaces as well, know that it takes quite a bit of time to go through the procurement cycle. Uh, the benefit is, of course, that uh, that's also an investment on the customer's point of view. So when they then have chosen a provider, they tend to stick around for, uh, for a long time. Uh, and they're also quite uh, um, quite large deals uh, once they once they procure. Uh, but you definitely have to be prepared to uh, go through all of these security uh, assessments, uh, discuss the, the data privacy regulations and uh, all of the contractual uh, elements um, to be and uh, to be able to serve these type of customers. Just just a quick question that is maybe a bit technical, but you talk about the distributed architecture. Can you quickly just explain that and why it is valuable for customers, especially mm. in a global context? Yeah, so I think uh, Paxip really has two core unique um, uh, sort of techno- technology differentiators. Uh, one is transcoding, so the ability to sort of build a video stream and to uh, really translate all of the different dialects of video, uh, which is why we're so great at interoperability, uh, and uh, which is why we're an important partner to to Microsoft and, and Google. The other is our deployment flexibility. So you can run Paxip as a uh, software as a service, and then you don't really care about sort of how it's being done, or you can run it as a software. Uh, and when it's run as a software, uh, Paxip is. Uh, truly distributed, which means that you can host Paxip then on a data center in the US, uh, a data center in Europe, and a data center in uh, in Asia Pacific. Um, And you can have meetings at the same time connecting into all of those three hubs, which means that the video experience is really optimal, both for the two people uh, that are joining from the US, the two people that are joining from Europe, and the ones that are joining from Asia. Uh, Because if uh, the... um, the video has to travel from the US into Asia and back again for the US uh, people to be able to talk to each other. It's not the greatest experience. Um, and being able to then do that within a single conference uh, is very also technolo- technology, uh, it's, a, it's, it's technically hard to do, which means that uh, it's not something that our competitors typically do. Uh, and so we're, we're quite unique in, in being uh, able to deliver that. Uh, it also means that it's easy to scale, so that if you were to go from 100 participants and you have uh, have that conference run on a single server, and then it goes out of capacity, it's very easy to just uh, expand it into a new server. And the people joining into the meeting won't really uh, feel that that's something taking place. It's just happening back in the back end. So having that sort of... Uh, uh, engineering edge uh, in the back end to really provide a seamless customer experience uh, is really important to us. Super interesting. We need to talk a bit about your vision to make virtual meeting better than meeting in person. I mean, it's a great vision, but how do you get there in sort of simple terms? And what's the journey? I think we're starting to really see that use case, those use cases come alive. Uh, so to take an example, uh, if uh, in a few years from now, it will surely be possible for us to speak uh, our own language uh, and have that automatically translated uh, to the others, which means that uh, if I'm meeting a, a important Japanese customer, uh, I can speak my native tongue and they can speak their native tongue, um, which we are in general much more comfortable at doing than trying to uh, uh, 
to discuss things in English, which is probably sort of not a native tongue of neither myself or, or the one I'm meeting. So having those sort of capabilities means that we can be more comfortable, uh, we can be more open and then uh, hopefully do better business uh, than we can uh, in a physical meeting where each of us are basically uh, uh, we're, we're trying to then translate our, our thinkings in our native tongues uh, into English. Another use case could be that uh, we can, now that AI is starting to pick up also on uh, understanding people's moods, uh, understanding people's uh, health, uh, we, can be, uh, we can use the video to be much more attentive than uh, any human can be. So think of this in a doctor conversation uh, as an example, where you have uh, the ability to both pick up if the person is, uh, isn't feeling well, uh, you can help pick up their mood so that you as a, uh, a doctor can get an early warning if there's uh, uh, something you should uh, should probe on or just get feedback if the uh, patient you're talking to is confused. Um, having those sort of uh, uh, simple tools can make video be a better meeting experience than if you were meeting in person. Are you going to build those features or is it about collaboration, partnerships, etc.? I think it's those things are really about collaboration partnerships. Uh, so uh, we are now, as an example, working with NVIDIA to uh, use a lot of their AI stack uh, into our meetings, where uh, NVIDIA has built a fantastic technology on AI in the, in the use of video, but it's not super easy to access it uh, because it needs to be run on the NVIDIA uh, sort of graphical processing units. Uh, and so it's not something that's most, uh, most softwares can easily use. Uh, so the reason why they are excited about working with Paxip is that we can do all of that uh, uh, compute in, in the cloud as opposed to relying on doing it on uh, each individual's laptop. So while it's difficult for me to know exactly what type of uh, uh, GPU you have in your computer, uh, I can make sure that I have the right set of uh, hardware in, in a data center somewhere. So there, Paxip can be an important sort of enabler into making those use cases come alive. So, uh, so obviously, the, these use cases are generally about machine learning, AI, more data, etc. But if you take the the other side, like if you look at VR and AR, do you have any hmm. views there, and do you see any synergies? Because obviously, if we're going to be more and more in a virtual world, obviously those can be equipments that can enhance that experience at some hmm. some point. No, definitely. And I think uh, the uh, promise of, uh, of AR uh, in particular, where you uh, even today have the ability to use, uh, use AR to get a view on the physical world uh, from whatever type of uh, remote uh, location you're in, uh, which is particularly useful. I mean, in uh, oil installations where you would have to travel uh, by helicopter for a few hours to get there. If you can use uh, AR to really sort of examine that physical environment, uh, but using a digital twin, that's obviously uh, useful. And there, Paxip can be a great help in also then introducing uh, video into that, uh, that stream. Uh, as an example, uh, assessing that the actual real world uh, fits with, the, uh, with the, uh, the AR model, and also being in direct contact with the people that are, are physically there to do uh, repairs, et cetera. So there we're already seeing uh, AR becoming and uh, becoming quite integrated uh, with video conferencing in a lot of uh, lot of interesting use cases. Will you ever entertain doing something in VR or is it AR that is the natural partner? 
I think for us, we will. Uh, it depends really on, on the use case, and if we see that it's uh, it's useful. Uh, I think for now, uh, it seems like AR is certainly sort of a bit more mature than sort of the full uh, virtual reality experience. Uh, although that might shift very very quickly. Um, and so I think for us, we will definitely not exclude it, but it depends on there being a clear use case that uh, our customers have need for. Makes sense. Let's talk a bit about the digitalization processes we are seeing right now. Uh, obviously, COVID has accelerated it tremendously, but mm. again, looking sort of it as uh, give us the broad overview. How, do you see any fundamental shifts that mm. will stay forever or is it hard to say just yet? I think COVID has really sort of forced us to move a lot of business uh, business interactions that we previously thought had to be physical uh, into the digital, digital realm. Uh, and I think uh, a bit more high level is that a lot of the digitalization that happened prior to 2020 was really about uh, automating away uh, more lower value interactions. Uh, or having the customer do that uh, themselves. So paying your bills online, which has been a, a very useful thing to be able to do uh, now for a number of years, is really about taking something that isn't that value adding. So going into a bank to, to do that and doing it, uh, doing it digitally, either automatically or myself doing it from my home. Uh, what I think COVID forced us to do is to take a lot of the more higher value interactions and to take those also into the digital realm. Um, when uh, uh, when we first did our IPO, uh, the uh, we started in January in uh, in 2020. Uh, we of course proposed that we could have a lot of these meetings uh, on video, uh, but that was plain unthinkable to both our banking partners and to the investors because you're asking someone to trust you to put uh, money into your company. That build that trust has to be built on uh, in person and can't be done on video. Of course, in March, COVID happened, so it really excluded the opportunity to do this physically. Uh, and we proved that it can be done digitally uh, if the technology can enable it. Uh, I think we're seeing the same in, uh, in doctor-patient uh, interactions, where also I really want my doctor to see me as a person. So doing this online uh, by email, as an example, won't give me the confidence that the doctor has truly done a great diagno uh, diagnosis of me. But doing it on video can really help make that uh, that possible. And then, of course, uh, at least for me, uh, the benefit of me as a user is that uh, while the 15-minute interaction uh, is as if I was there physically, uh, I save at least an hour traveling back and forth, uh, sitting in the waiting room, where I can actually uh, be at work or be in my uh, my home, uh, which is a far sort of better total experience for me than uh, than going into the office. Definitely. Just looking at personal experience, I feel, I feel that maybe the hardest part to digitalize is this, maybe the first meeting. But if you had, it's of course it depends what the first meeting is all about, right? But but certainly the next few meetings seems like it's very uh, obvious that can go digital. No, I, I completely agree. I think that's uh, because. I don't think video will replace the need to be there physically, but it really sort of uh, uh, at least ensures that the most value of meeting physically is to have that first meeting to build that interaction. And it's also when you have something to celebrate. So in settings where you're really there to build the relationship, you're not just there to exchange information uh, or to, to do business. Because that is very often uh, as uh, quick to do on video uh, than in person, and you get the same results out of it. 
Uh, I, I certainly hope that we're not uh, going into a world where uh, everything is, is on video all the time, uh, but certainly a lot of interactions and a lot of meetings will be far more efficient uh, if, they're, uh, if it's possible to do them on video uh, and also far more sustainable. I think uh, the, uh, the impact of both uh, travel within a city, uh, if you have to go from one location to another, uh, but certainly between cities, if you have to jump on a plane to do a two hour meeting, it's a huge waste, um, and with sustainability and uh, and global warming becoming sort of an ever more important uh, uh, topic, I think this is one of the tools uh, at our disposal that can really help us reduce the need for uh, for travel and the need for emissions. Um, Agree. Okay, can we let's uh, switch gear a bit? We have some questions from Twitter, so I'll read them up, and then you can answer long or short, uh, whatever you want. So. What is the most common reason when customers churn or say it in a more easy way, stop using Paxip? Yeah, I think uh, one of the reasons uh, that we have seen is the, uh, as I alluded to earlier in, in our discussion on uh, that customers are uh, consolidating onto some large industry platforms. I think we are definitely seeing network effects on, uh, on Teams uh, to some extent on Zoom, on WebEx and, and Gmeet. Uh, luckily for Pexip, that has not been a major part of our growth over the past two years either. So for us, it's a relatively smaller piece of our business, uh, but it's certainly an area where we're seeing more churn than in the use cases where we are unique. Uh, and I think that's a fairly general point uh, in a lot of software is that uh, in the areas where you can be unique and where you can sort of at least... Uh, either be the best one in, in the world or at least aspire to be one of, one of the best, uh, you are much more competitive than in areas where you are, are simply one of many. Uh, I think for, for Paxib, the other big driver that we see is that we have much higher churn amongst customers that are small with Paxib uh, because those are either customers that are using multiple platforms at the same time. And so it's uh, more likely that they can, uh, can opt to another platform. Um, and then some of them will opt for Paxip and then become a, a larger customer over time. Uh, and also I think our whole value proposition, go to market and business processes are really geared towards uh, being great with the large enterprises. Uh, it's not really a, neither a technology uh, or, uh, um, uh, or a sales motion, which is really adapted to uh, small and medium businesses. Next one is very specific, but I'll try it. How many percent of new sales staff is still working at Paxip after 12 months? Ooh, great question. I think uh, if I look at so uh, bit of the backstory is that uh, since the IPO, we have really hired a lot of uh, people, especially in sales marketing, to supercharge our growth. Uh, for us, that was the core premise of the uh, the uh, the IPO was to take the unit economics and the uh, sort of business model that we had validated and uh, really scale that up faster than what we could do on our own cash flow. So we've hired a lot of people over the past 18 months. Uh, if you look at the team that was here uh, that we hired in 2020, uh, I think in sales and marketing, uh, in total, roughly 15% or so are still uh, are, have now left the company. Uh, which is in part then uh, people leaving on their own uh, um, uh, accord, but it's also then individuals that weren't really a great match with with Paxip and where we've found a, uh, a sort of a, a common uh, uh, a common decision that uh, it's better for them to seek opportunities elsewhere. 
how do you find that balance uh, when you're, I don't know if blitzscaling is the right word, but aggressive growth, how do you find that balance between the churn of, of the employees as well? Because there has to be a balance there. I mean, you can't go all the way on one side. No, for sure. And I think uh, when you're really scaling fast, it's uh, the recruiting process is probably even more important than when you're scaling uh, at a more moderate pace. Because at the end of the day, you really need those people that come in that to be really great because you don't have uh, the same level of both uh, an experienced team that can help onboard them, nor a, a manager that uh, is probably needs to sort of scale up several new hires as opposed to just one. So I think that's uh, the hiring process is uh, really, really uh, super important uh, in, in that type of phase because you need to find great individuals. Uh, then you will from time to time uh, miss. I think it's important to recognize that uh, regardless of how great your sales process is and your recruiting process, uh, there will from time to time be uh, be people that aren't that aligned with the, with the organization. And then uh, having the ability to detect that early on uh, and to find good solutions uh, is is important uh, because in the end i think uh, both Paxip as a company and individuals that uh, aren't that good of a match we will both benefit from uh, from discovering that uh, early on in the process uh, as opposed to, to to later on it makes sense uh next question is sort of a follow-up question but it's about when are you seeing that the sales capacity is fully up and running to the desired capacity so I think for us, we see that it takes, uh, we've said in the past that it takes between nine and 12 months uh, to, uh, from when you join Paxip to when we're seeing sales results uh, at the level that we would expect. Uh, in those nine to 12 months, a lot of the work is around building pipeline. It's around being, uh, both learning the, the product and then starting to work those opportunities from start to close. Uh, and as we touched on earlier, that's, uh, especially in large enterprise, is a process that takes a bit of time. Um, I think we're seeing now that it takes uh, closer to uh, to 12 months and probably somewhat above that as well, uh, which I think is in part a, a consequence of us uh, scaling at a much higher pace. Uh, so I think part of that responsibility is almost to uh, to give them the necessary support. But it's also, a, I think, a... Uh, um, a trait of uh, sort of the society in general now uh, with the with the pandemic, where doing business takes a bit longer, uh, both for customers to decide and to to implement the solutions that they, that they uh, that they choose. The next one is about the cloud video interoperability. Will it still be as important in five years' time? Is maybe a more strategic uh, question. Yeah. So I, th- I think that's a. Uh, very interesting question and i think for the uh, since Paxip really started with interoperability it's always been a, a question so surely this can't be a solution five years down the road uh, and then uh, now nine close to ten years later it's actually even more important than it was in the past um, so well i i think that the uh, exact use case that we're solving now. So standard-based video rooms into Microsoft Teams as a platform, uh, that use case is probably less relevant in five years from now than it is now. Uh, But uh, by then, I think there will be other platforms and other use cases uh, that really need that type of interoperability. Because what we're seeing is that uh, both the level of innovation within uh, the different video platforms has never been higher than it is now. 
and they are sort of intrinsically uh, motivated to not work that well with each other because at the end of the day it's uh, more important to create uh, stickiness and reasons for the customer to stay within your uh, ecosystem than to really work well with other ecosystems uh, and that is one of the oh sorry talking about sustainability <laughs> um, that's really one of the areas where Paxip finds a lot of value because uh, we are also humble enough to realize the uh, the practical difficulties that a lot of our customers uh, face uh, and to good enough to find good technology and solutions to those problems. Uh, just the last one, maybe it sounds a bit brutal, but I think it's interesting regardless. Just, uh, I think the question was, why can't Apple just buy Paxip or the same capabilities if they wanted to? Hmm. But that's maybe talking a bit also about the, the competitive landscape and the big players and Paxip being a smaller player, etc. But Yeah, I think uh, while in theory anything uh, in software can be done if you throw enough people and, uh, and money at it, uh, what is truly unique about Paxip is uh, our ability to be delivered uh, both as a software service but also as a dedicated software. Uh, which requires a completely different type of uh, development methodology than if you're developing a, a cloud service. So while you, with a cloud service, can uh, iterate on something um, uh, as you go, and if you detect problems, you can fix them uh, in your backend, and uh, that fix will be available to customers the next day. If you develop a software package, you really need to make a product that can live on for, uh, for years without anyone touching it. Uh, and I think that uh, development methodology, together with one of the most extreme test regimes uh, that you will find in the software industry, uh, is the reason why Paxip is so successful in serving large enterprises with a dedicated software. Uh, so that part, I think, is very difficult to uh, to retrofit. And it's difficult to take a cloud service and then try and repackage it uh, into a, a software that you can, uh, can, uh, can send off. The other unique part of Paxip is really the aspect around transcoding. Uh, so taking in different uh, types of media streams, um, uh, repackage those so that uh, each individual can uh, can receive uh, something that they understand. Because the dialects of video are sli slightly different if you're using Zoom or Teams or, uh, or a video system. Um, and their Pexib is really, really good. So having that ability to do transcoding uh, without uh, meaningful latency, uh, which also means that you can add in a lot of AI things uh, uh, in the cloud as opposed to doing it on the, on the laptop. It's really, really hard. So it's a really sort of hardcore engineering uh, and a lot of mathematics that have gone into building that uh, that algorithm. Uh, and while it's, uh, I will not say that it's impossible for others to do, there is a reason why uh, companies such as Google or, or Microsoft uh, have uh, come to the conclusion that it's better to partner with Paxip than to try to develop this themselves. Uh, and that also speaks that it's to the fact that it's not a uh, certainly not a trivial sort of technology feature to, to add. Good points. Just some uh, closing remarks. If we again go a bit more broadly, not just looking at Pexip, but more in general, what do you think is necessary in order to have success as a software company scaling internationally, either from Norway, Sweden, or Denmark? Ooh. I think uh, what has been crucial for, for Paxip is a uh, starting position with fantastic people. At the end, that's really what you, you need to have. 
uh, and it's uh, so important because things will change sooner than you realize. And uh, as such, it's uh, you need people that can uh, can adjust and pivot based on that. Uh, I also think that uh, a strong network uh, that you can uh, hire from uh, and also experience in a lot of the challenges that you are going to face uh, is super important. Uh, for Pexip uh, coming out of uh, of Tamburg, uh, that was a a crucial sort of part of our success because we knew a lot of the uh, both potential business partners in the industry uh, and also some of the best people to hire in that early stage, uh, which is particularly important uh, when you're scaling internationally. Because while you can uh, have a good network within uh, within Norway, as an example. Uh, to find that one individual that can take you to success in the US is super, super hard to do. Uh, and it's important to not underestimate that challenge of finding uh, finding great people. And I think the other part that is uh, absolutely essential is that uh, in almost all cases, you will scale from a sm small base, uh, meaning that you can't do everything yourself. Uh, so developing good partnerships uh, and also knowing sort of what is your uniqueness and focus your development on that. Uh, and what is really uh, things that you need to do about that others are better at so that you can buy a sort of off-the-shelf software for that uh, is super important. So staying focused um, really matters. Just a, just a last question. There's a lot of bright people watching this show wanting to have uh, an exciting career. Do you have any final advice for people that are st maybe starting out in their career or want to have a change in their career? Like obviously you sort of taking the opportunities and you have had a very interesting story so far, but is there any advice you can give to other people as well? I think where my success has come from is to take the opportunities uh, that have uh, have arised. So being uh, be confident enough to take risk, uh, so that uh, and know sort of what type of experience that you're looking for, because at the end that will be much more important than uh, call it retaining a uh, exciting sounding job title uh, if it's not really giving you the experiences that you need. Uh, so. Uh, be confident enough to to take risks and to accept opportunities when they are offered um, and also have a clear view of what type of uh, experience that uh, that you want to to add to your uh, portfolio of experiences uh, i think are have been useful tools for for me at least great ending Esten, thank you so much for taking the time thank you so much christopher hi everyone christopher here again just a few things before you leave the show if you liked this episode, it would be great if you could give it a review and also share it with your professional network. If you want to get in touch with me, Twitter is the place. Just go to at Chris Wunheim. You can also find this information in the show notes. Hope to see you tune in to the next episode and take care.